And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Uh, you are now tuned into anything potable. The most honorable, the most audible. Hold the applause. Like Paul Pierce when he was fresh out the hospital. Like Antoine when he shimmied after shots went through. So tell me why you mad even. Your team gonna be sad leaving after matching up with Brad Stevens. Gang green, it's no other way. So tune in to the part if you plan on staying up today. You heard? <laughs> AJ, I, I see you, man. She. Welcome to Boston Celtics podcast here on the Athletic Podcast Network. This podcast is brought to you by Direct TV Stream. Get your TV together with the best of live and on demand. Learn more at directtv.com. I am your host, Sam Jam Packford. I call myself a professional sports fan. I am joined, as always, by the kid, the god, the legend himself, Celtics beat reporter from The Athletic. That's right, Jay King, ladies and gentlemen. And we are coming to you a couple of days before the start of the Celtics 2021-2022 NBA season, which is kind of wild because uh, it wasn't too long ago that they were, uh, you know, playing another uh, season. Very short offseason, but um, we're back. It wasn't too long ago they were playing another season. <laughs> well, I, don't know, I, I, I had nothing. I prepared nothing for the opener, so I didn't know what to say. Oh man, that was great. That was genius, genius work. Very Thank literary you. in your opening. Uh, I'm proud you know what is wild is that I saw some tweet that a, a year ago today is when Anthony Davis hit um, like that game winning shot in the bubble. So in the last calendar year, there have been three NBA seasons. That's pretty wild. You can't. You can't, you can't it's wild stuff. You didn't, you were speechless. You were rendered without speech with that fact. That one uh, got me. Yeah. But so media day is next Monday. We'll come. Uh, we'll podcast after that and tell you all the riveting things that I'm sure all the players and coaches are going to say on media day, uh, as they always do. But today we got questions. We got big questions, and these um, are what professional. I'm a professional sports fan, so I don't have to think up these questions. But Jay King, he's a professional sports writer. And he uh, covers the Boston Celtics, and he came up with 10 questions to think about um, as the Celtics head into training camp. So we're just going to discuss them. And I thought you did an appropriate job uh, with the first question, which is the biggest question of them all. What's Ime Udoka going to be like? We have no idea. That is the question, really. Because, I mean, you you can criticize what Brad's done, Brad Stevens did two of the last three seasons. But he was a good coach. Like the Celtics aren't replacing a bum coach. They're not not replacing a coach who had very little success. Brad Stevens, his teams were regularly good to very good. They often overachieved, except for a couple of times when they didn't. 
Um, and his defense, talk about some poetic stuff right there. The, the defenses were almost always either good to very good or great. And so Ime Odoka, like he's not just replacing a chump. And I, I think, you know, if there's a, it's not impossible to improve from Brad Stevens, but it's tough to get a coach as good as Brad Stevens. So Ime Odoka, you know, he's he's got some pretty big shoes to fill. Not even just in terms of coaching and like what he's going to provide X's and O's and on the court, but just his personality, his style, like Brad was so kind of robotic. Like I just think of the famous clip of him, like the Celtics hitting a game winner and him having no reaction at all. It doesn't feel like he is like that whatsoever. I've been I told actually, he is. I've been told he's more reserved than Brad. That's insane. Which, which would be wild. Which is pretty wild, but like I'm I kind curious. of fought back against that. Like, there's just no <laughs> way. Well, it's gonna be interesting. It's like how he deals with the media. I think Brad, um, at least early on, was very much like business, uh, and which makes sense, and kind of got more comfortable before Brad started making making his jokes. But like that is one major thing about being an NBA coach is that now Ime has to speak pretty much at every practice. Uh, before and after every single game, he's like he is the voice of the team now, um, and it's just it's going to be interesting. Just I, I don't know if I have a, it's like a I'm more interested in this just because I like have been in the scrums and like know uh, kind of what that interaction is like. But it's just kind of be fascinating to see how he approaches uh, kind of his interactions with the media. Some coaches will tell you a lot. Like Doc Rivers will come out and say he doesn't think that Ben Simmons is a or doesn't know if Ben Simmons is an NBA point guard. Brad kind of played it more close to the vest and didn't really want to talk about stuff. And so it's going to be interesting for me to see how much Ime kind of um, shows about like what he's thinking and just kind of how expressive he is and how much he's just like how much of a himself he actually shows to the media. Uh, and I guess we'll see on media day. Yeah, and I think like that stuff doesn't matter the most of of what a coach does like that's not his biggest responsibility as a head coach but what you say in the media and how it's taken by the players matters and and i think brad like i don't know if i ever heard brad publicly criticize a player for the way he played basketball once in the entire time i covered brad which was his entire celtics tenure as a head coach and and I think sometimes he could have been a little more forceful and sometimes guys would have been motivated by him being a little more forceful. Um, but that's a tactic you don't want to use all the time because you can also piss off people too. And so I do think that stuff matters to some extent. I think it's notable that Udoka's al- already come out and kind of started to empower Marcus Smart by saying we're going to put the ball in his hands and also put a little pressure on Tatum and Brown to improve his playmakers, which I think is obvious, you know, something that that the Celtics obviously need, and especially with the way the roster is after moving Kemba Walker and Evan Fournier. But the fact that he's going out and doing that publicly and kind of putting the onus on them to to be more unselfish and set up guys and realize that it's not about how many points they score, like I think that that stuff matters. And so I, I want to, I'm interested to see how how he's different from Brad, um, the tone he sets. And and just kind of what his priorities are in training camp because we Brad was predictable. Brad was like the most predictable person ever. We we would know basically depending on how the Celtics played, what happened, whether he'd come in and be upset, whether he'd come in and kind of just say, "Oh, 
it was a like I'm not mad about the effort. Like we just had it was a tough. Yeah, loss you could whatever. tell the process results loss. Like you knew what Brad was saying. The only thing that Brad um, was not predictable about was his starting lineup. Like when he started Gerald Green uh, in that playoff that game, that was wild. <laughs> that was the like the wildest thing that Brad has done. But it's gonna be interesting to see like what. As much as Brad was predictable off the court, he's kind of predictable on the court. Like you knew Brad was going to go to his like some three guard lineups when he wanted to. Like you knew kind of like the things he was trying to do and experiment more to the start of the season. Then he'd have things to rely on. It's going to be interesting to see like what Ime relies upon early. And if he feels kind of that pressure to win early or if he's more experimental, which I think brings us to the second question is like, what are, what are these lineups going to be? You tried to build a rotation um, for the Celtics and it's going to be pretty difficult to, to obviously do that. But I think the one thing that really the Celtics are going to benefit from this year as compared to last year is they just have so much more depth where if looking at the rotation you built, like it only goes, your rotation only went 10 guys deep and that's Pritchard and Wancho and Gomes only getting six minutes. So the majority of your minutes are going to go to like legitimate NBA players and I don't know who the starter is going to be, but it's like basically your bench is made up of some combination of Schroeder, Horford, Richardson, and then maybe Aaron Neesmith. That's just so much better. Like it's not wildly great NBA talent, but compared to what Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown were surrounded with last year, it's a significant step up. Yeah. And I think the the biggest personnel decision that Udoka will make early on is whether to play Horford at power forward. And I think starting Horford at power forward is in consideration. And I think, that's something the organization has thought about um, because if they don't do that, they're going to be a lot smaller and and they'll just play a lot differently. And then the other thing I think that there will be a trade-off when he decides lineups is shooting or like toughness and playmaking. Like Schroeder and Richardson and Smart, they're just not good shooters. And <laughs> and so I, I do think that there will be times when Udoka has to sacrifice and put put more shooting on the court, even if those guys aren't necessarily as good players as the other guys or as good all-around players as the other guys. And so I'm interested to see how that goes. Like we knew with Brad in the fourth quarter down the stretch, he was going to go to five skilled guys. He was not going to go with a bigger lineup. He would throw Gordon Hayward at power forward. He would throw Al Horford at center he would often go very, very small. And I guess most, a lot of coaches do that in the NBA these days, but, you know, there are different ways to play. And and I'm just, I am kind of intrigued to see how how that goes on. We, we got to... <laughs> Tell him, tell him, read it, read it, Packer. From it's Cedric Joshua Manalo, uh, JM, you're my guy and all, but Jay clapped your cheeks, bro, laughing my effing ass off. No, he did. Um, but you should see me out in these pickup uh, streets since then. Um, it was embarrassing. That I think I th- like every time I uh, kind of get down, I think about Jay not only beating me, but all the shit he talked. And then the podcast I had to do uh afterwards where jay was uh, even more of a jerk um i think it's actually produced better results on the court um and so yes i did lose to jay but i think it's fueled me to go out there work on my shot more you know it's, it's like you gotta take these losses and you gotta get better you must have known going into it that the highest probability was that i was going to beat you it was going to look ugly and i was going to be an asshole about it Yes, I knew all three of those things going in. I'm still disappointed with my effort and my result. Like, my process wasn't good. 
Um, so I'm still disappointed with uh, the effort I put in. And so that still fuels me um, to like play better, put in more effort when I'm playing pickup these days um, and just get out there and work on my shot. But you're right. Uh, I did, uh, to turn a phrase, have my cheeks clapped uh, by Jay King. Oh, this is something that there was almost a huge brawl uh, when I was playing pickup earlier this week, Jay, that I wanted to get your perspective on. Okay. You were playing. You are. You have the ball. You're driving to the rim. Uh, you get fouled. You yell out and one, but you miss the shot. What's the result of the play? And one is a false call. Like that's not a foul call. So if, if you miss it and you didn't call foul, you call and one. That's the other team's ball. It's going the other way. Um, that and that's that's a hundred percent. Like if if you're a basketball player, you should know that there should be no brawl about that. And, that and is one. not what the dispute was. That was just the establishing facts. I completely agree with you because if you call out okay, and what was one, the dispute? if you call foul, just foul and make the shot, what happens then? Then the ball that basket doesn't count. That's crazy to me. Well, that's the truth. That's how it goes. If you call foul, you basically have to choose between the foul and the possibility of making the bucket. What is the point of that rule? That's you're not allowed. It's to, that's stupid. Just, it's the dumbest rule, been. and it goes against like just the like how the so, spirit so of basketball. What, what was the played. brawl about? Someone made game point, but called like clearly got hacked and managed to, and they called foul and then made the bucket. And they were like celebrated like they won. And then everyone else is like, nah, 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 you didn't win. You called foul. And there was just a screaming match about like what that was. I like the letter of the law, how people play is the rule you describe where if you call foul, it's not allowed to go in. But I just think it's the dumbest rule. I'm not going to be one to fight it. Well, but I think here, it's here's very, why, here's very why, stupid. Here's why they have it because then you'd call more and more fouls. Like, like it would just open you, open the door to you calling foul on any borderline play and then getting it back if you miss it or just counting it if if you score it. Whereas the other way, if it's borderline, you're probably going to just let it go and try to finish the basket. If you're calling a bunch of soft fouls, you're going to get like one, a bunch of shit talk to you. Like, I just don't think it's like enough of a deterrent for people to call fouls. Like people either calling fouls when they're clearly getting smacked or they're not. It's just, it's so stupid. Jam the kids kid Packard. We can't, we can't give we can't give Cedric multiple comments to oh, Cedric uh, <laughs> deserves multiple comments today. He's coming with the heat to just talk shit about you me. You are uh, the kid's kid. That's a scary, scary uh, just thought of uh, Jay King, the father. But um, all right. Thank, thank you for that. Uh, anything is potable. Pick up uh, discourse. Uh, I think it's a dumb rule. I get your your explanation of right there of just trying to deter uh, wild foul calls is the best explanation I've heard so far, but I still think it's stupid. Um, but I digress. Your number three question heading into trading camp is how will health change Jalen Brown's game moving forward? Is he ready to make another leap as he's kind of done in the, each of his uh, past four? He's played four seasons so far. Uh, that sounds about right. I I don't know why I'm stumped right now. When did he he started? He's played four years. Yeah, four. Yeah. All right. How is health going to improve that game? <laughs> no. So I just thought that they were interesting comments that he said to. He's played Mark, five years. We are wrong. <laughs> I just thought it was interesting the comments he said to uh, Mark Spears and the undefeated. 
about how his knee kind of hurt him more than uh, he let on, more than the organization let on. And obviously, we knew that was an issue during the season. Like, there were a few times he sat out because of knee pain. He talked about his knee pain a, a few times. But then he, he pointed out a stat, which I thought was really interesting, which is that he had by far the fewest dunks he's ever had in a season. And sure enough, I looked it up, and and he did. And it, it kind of shined a, a new light on some of the other stats, which was that he had the lowest free throw rate pretty substantially that he'd ever had in the NBA. Um, he didn't get to the rim as often percentage-wise as as he used to. And I, I do think part of that was just Jalen Brown realizing I cannot be reckless. I cannot just drive with my head down and and do all that and kind of adding to his bag and adding to uh, with more tricks. But, you know, if, if his knee was hindering him in those ways, I think it's important to the Celtics to have him kind of have an uptick again in especially free throw rate, but definitely getting getting to the cup a little bit more. And with with the advancements he's made as a ball handler, as a shooter, and especially a shooter off the dribble, by the end of last year, he was shooting a ton of threes, and he was doing it at a very high clip. And so I just think his game continues to evolve, and I'm, I'm interested to see whether, you know, if the knees are a little better. Um, and it's something we didn't really talk about a lot last year, but but if if that does kind of push him forward, back to where he used to be at least in in those other categories while while maintaining the shooting off the dribble and all that stuff that he really took an incredible stride in last year. It's interesting in thinking about like what Jalen Brown did like so much better last year. It felt like his shooting off the dribble as you mentioned, but um just kind of all of his moves in the mid-range, just kind of his footwork, his like fadeaway gain and his just ability to knock those knock down those shots in the paint. He was got so much better, and if that was just a product of him like not feeling as necessarily as explosive uh, to kind of get to the cup, if he's fully healthy and can kind of do both of those things, it should be um, just like a huge step for him, um, just in terms of his offensive game. But I think the other thing that was interesting about that uh, interview he did was he said that his like main priority this offseason is getting better at playmaking, which I think he absolutely is going to have to do with the ball being in his hands uh, more. Um, but it's, it just feels like every single year Jalen Brown has added a little bit of something to his game and it's gotten better each of the, um, throughout the season, uh, maybe last year, not as much, but now we see that uh, maybe a knee was kind of the largest issue there. And so if he can kind of put, bring back together the explosiveness, the athleticness to get to the rim and, um, kind of add more free throws to a game in combination with the mid range game in combination with better playmaking, um, he has a chance to really kind of improve his game and step up. The thing that I thought was interesting is that both Sports Illustrated and ESPN came out with their official top 100 NBA players. And on both lists, he's the 27th best player in the league. Do you agree definitively that Jalen Brown is the 27th best player in the I NBA? I think it's pretty clear he's the consensus 27th best player in the league. There, I don't think there's, there's any no, way to disagree no debate with that. about that. But I do think as far as the playmaking stuff goes, um, and that's been an obvious focus from Udoka since he got the job, I think if there is a you know, upside to having a 500 season last year, it's that as well as Tatum and Brown played, there's no hiding the fact that it wasn't good enough. And there's no hiding the fact that the way they played 
was not conducive enough to winning basketball to overcome all the other crap. Like, not everything was their fault. There was so much that was not their fault. They were the two shining lights in an otherwise dark season. But at the same time, like, the guys who are good enough lift lift their teams up and and help them get through stuff like that. And and I, I do think, you know, there, there's – there can be a, a real benefit to that, to to looking around and realizing, like, I know a lot went wrong this year, but also, like, I just wasn't flat out good enough as a playmaker, as a creator, as whatever else, for the Celtics to be better than 500. And, like, 500 is not a high bar. <laughs> like, no. it, it's not like, you know, getting to the, the top seed, winning the final. No, like 500. 500. Being in the play-in game. Like, yeah, you're right. That even, like the Celtics should be better, especially in the regular season, because there is more depth around these two stars. But for them to be at all like in the conversation about a contender this year or for them to make progress in the playoffs, it is about those two guys. And I would say more so about Jason Tatum, which leads us to the next uh, question you have, making that step and being the guy who can lead you in a like playoff series. Like, the Mavericks last year really didn't have a great team around Luka Doncic, but Luka basically carried them to seven games against the Clippers pretty much uh, entirely by himself. And is, is Jason Tatum right now, who there is some dispute of whether he's the 13th best player in the league or the 14th best player in the league, is he ready to take that next step where he's a top 10 player in the league and there's no there's no debate about that. And I think you you presented some interesting stats about just like his progression last year before and after COVID. Um, but it seems like he's another guy who's gotten better every year. Is he top 10 good? Though? Is is this the year that he officially annoyed? Like I'm going to be an all NBA player no matter what. Yeah. I, I think obviously I, I'm, I'm not sure about that, but like, there are signs that to me suggest that Tatum is ready to really grow his game. I think by the end of last year, and especially in that net series, like he never played better than probably in that net series. That game three was one of the best performances I've seen by a Celtics player pretty easily. And and I just think after that, your confidence has to be so high. He did it against Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant comes out and basically says, yeah, I put Tatum on the list of like greats that I've played against in the playoffs. Like he's that good. It was an honor to play against him. Then he goes out on the team USA and his second leading score behind only Kevin Durant higher than Damian Lillard, higher than everybody else on that team. And I just think the confidence has to be there. I also think his year last year would have, been looked at so differently if it wasn't for that one shitty COVID month. Like he came back from COVID and was not nearly as good as he was the rest of the season for one month. And I think that's very understandable. I think he outlined all the all the reasons that that it impacted him and kind of lingered with him. And and the stats, it it's clear as day that month he was just not as good. And so I think you take away that month, you look at all the 50-point games he had down the stretch of last season, and then you look at his stats with and without Kemba Walker last season. When Kemba Walker was not on the court, his usage rate went way up, his points per 36 minutes went way up, and I just think this team is built more for Jason Tatum, more for Jalen Brown, 
And so I, I just think all signs point toward him having a very, very big season. He's, even by his standards, like last year, he was very good. Um, and there were months, except for that one month, like he was pretty great most of the season. But I just think like there's still another level for him to reach. And I think that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that he'll start reaching that this season. Yeah, if you just look at like from the 2019-2020 season to 2021, uh, just in terms of pure counting stats, he like went from three assists a game to four point three assists per game, and like that's just natural with his usage rate going up. But he's making those passes, and he went from four point seven free throws a game to five point three. If you just, I know you can't like assume linear progression, but as you noted in his article, like he's gotten bigger. I think that's one of the things that he was really um, doing well in that net series was just getting to the rack and getting to the line. He averaged basically 26, close to 27 points a game last year. If he can get to, and I, know, I think 5.3 free throws a game is like kind of a low number for him. Like he has the potential yeah, to kind it, of average eight a game. Seven, eight pretty easily. And if he does that, then it's like we can t- be talking about him being like a 30 or like high 20s a night type of guy, which is like I kind of think like how dominant you need to be. If you you can really take over a game, if you can control the free throw line. And I think he fully has that potential um, to get better. Um, we've seen nothing in his career other than basically that one COVID month to suggest that he's like not going to continue being a great basketball player. Like everything he's ever done on the court has been uh, very good. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see I clearly it's his team now, right? Like, like last year there it was his teams last year, but there's like Kemba Walker still kind of existed and he was a, a star. Um, kind of existed. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's still, he still, he was there. We can't argue he wasn't there, but how much does Jason Tatum, um, like a lot of the basketball last year was ISO ball with Jason Tatum uh, and his usage rate clearly went up and his percentages uh, went down a bit, or at least his percentages from three as he just like was taking more threes. Ime has talked about how, like, they need to be a better passing team. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see what Tatum's approach is. Is he, real like, looking to get his? Is he looking to, like, really draw fouls and get to the line? Or is he, like, really looking to kind of establish this team style of basketball? So I'm curious to see, like, what his approach is going into year five where – he is the he is the guy, but is it is it his responsibility to make everyone around him better, or is it his responsibility to kind of get his stats and everyone else will fall in line? And I, I'm curious to see how much better he can get off the ball because I, I think a lot of a lot of the stuff for him. Obviously, he's an incredibly gifted one on one player. He's an incredibly gifted scorer. If he just makes it a little easier for himself by preparing for his touches a little better, whether it's coming off a screen harder, whether it's you know getting a, a slightly lower post up, whether it's whatever. And then, like you said, free throws. He's apparently a little stronger now. At, and, you know, getting to the line, playing through guys. And then the, the the part of the net series that stood out to me the most, and before that, the Wizards game, the play-in game where he went bonkers. Um, like, he just didn't let anyone off the hook. It was – he was hunting out advantages. He was – doing what he wanted, not what the defense wanted. And like, there was just a, a level of relentlessness that that's just – it's tough to do because you have to be in great shape. You have to 
you know, be incredibly skilled. You have to be always on the attack. But I think that's in him. And and if he gets to that level all the time consistently, then there's no reason he can't be one of the actual elite players in the game rather than on like the second tier or whatever he's been. Yeah, and I think it it's going to be interesting to see like kind of how, what he's what he's worked on and what he's really tried to emphasize uh, in the offseason. I'm going to combine these next two questions and um if I was your editor uh over at the Athletic, I don't think I would have let these two uh be separate. But will the bench well, you, be good? You had to have 10. You can't well, have Well, come up with questions. a new question, Jay. Come up with a new question. But the questions were don't will the bench thrive question. and will the young players which young players are the most ready? It's kind of the same question. I disagree entirely because I think they'll have at least three established players on their bench in all likelihood. Um, You know, if Horford and Robert Williams both start, they'll have Schroeder, they'll have Richardson, they'll have Ennis Cantor on the bench. Three productive guys who play pretty high minutes and have started a lot of games on playoff teams. Um so I don't think you necessarily need a young guy to be extremely good or very good or even like particularly good to have a very productive bench. Um, so that that's my thing. And the more I think about their bench, and it, it's a weird bench because I think depending on how Udoka decides to start in lineup, like there may not be a ton of shooting. Like it's, it's, be, it's pretty small or it's, it's pretty big. It, yeah, it's, it's either pretty small, it's pretty big. Um, so it could be it could be a weird mix. But I also think, you know, those guys are all productive. They've all been productive pros. They've all contributed to some some very good teams over the years. And and I just think that especially the difference between last year and and this year where it's like, veterans who have been there who have done it who have played in smaller roles before or not like huge roles not not where they're like go-to guys um so i just think the bench has a chance if they can mesh together and they may not because like i said it's a weird fit but but i just think like there's a lot of talent on that bench um from shooter to Cantor, like those are two accomplished scorers in the nba guys who have done a, a lot of things in the nba and obviously each player has his holes um, but I think it's going to be tough for second units to deal with those guys. I think, okay, one, you uh, did a good job justifying um, why that's a separate question than the rookies, um, but this is what the editing process is. I'm just asking the question to get you to think as a writer. I'm really enhancing you. Um, shout out to the Celtics, though, who does not have – they finalized their coaching staff. They don't do player development. They do player enhancement, which I like. like it's just – I don't know why they decided they needed to change the verbiage there, but the Celtics are about enhancing players. They don't develop guys because it's about it's about what the guys bring. It's not what the Celtics coaches are doing. They're just enhancing. They're not developing them. But the thing about the bench, which I think is interesting, and my um, dumb, optimistic, irrational brain has talked myself into, is that it is small and it does lack shooting, but – the role, like the point of the bench is just to like support the guy, like the starters and give some guys some rest. Like the bench isn't going to do a lot of times where it's like five man bench units. That's just really not how the NBA works. And so I imagine there's uh, probably going to be times where most of the game you would stagger Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. Like there's not going to be a lot of minutes when they're not on the court. And so having some smaller guys who are guards with one being an offensive specialist and Schroeder, one being a kind of a more defensive guy and Richardson, and then having some depth at the bigs with it, it, whether it's Horford or whether it's Cantor, 
those guys or all four of those players feel like they're compliments to your two main stars who are going to be getting the majority of the minutes and who are going to be on the court the majority of the time. And so it's not like the bench has to come in and play this unit where they're, it's just them five playing against their team's bench. No, they're there to basically support the two best players on the teams who are wings. So it kind of makes a little sense that they are um, smaller and you would ideally like have them have more shooting, but uh, or bigger and can kind of provide some toughness. But I think they fit a, a solid role of just being able, like they uh, support the main stars of the team. Um, and so who are likely going to be on the court. So I'm less concerned about the bench, not having as much uh, shooting, because I do think that like, as you said, they're established NBA players and they, I think the, all of them kind of fit around the two main wing guys uh, who we've talked about earlier. Yeah. And I think the fit, See, I'm not sure about the fit yet. I, I think, especially with the backcourt of guys that can't Schroeder, really shoot. Schroeder's like, the I one think, is interesting because he kind of needs the ball in his hands. So I don't know if he like fits with what I was just talking about. But as I preface my entire thing, this is a, a rational Celtics fan talk. And so um, I don't need to be held to logic or reason when, it's, when it comes to that stuff. Yeah, and then I do think like, depending on how how they use Horford like he's just a guy who makes everything easier for everybody he's a guy who can provide floor spacing from the front court which they haven't really had since he left um and so it'll just be a different type of team this year and I do think it's it's a significantly deeper team especially from where they were at the beginning of last season um and and where they were really through most of the last season like once they had a Fournier they had a a number of established guys they had some options off the bench but they never really had those guys healthy whether it was because Kemba was out on a second ever back to back whether it was because Fournier was out because of COVID the like top they, seven last year never, never really, played one game together they never really had that team so I mean as you're looking at it on paper they should be deeper but we'll see we will see and this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shea Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shea Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture themed trophies for six basketball related activities. Trophies like the Dom- 
Dominic Toretto I Live My Life a Quarter Mile at a Time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. They'll be even deeper if they get a young guy to step up, which is my next question. That is your next question. Who do you think is more ready? Is it Neesmith? Is it Pritchard? And I think it's obvious. I was going to ask the question, like, who it's who would they benefit from, um, like, stepping up more? I think it's obviously, like, Neesmith just because he gives you three-point shooting and the kind of defensive versatility that you look for. So if Neesmith can step up, I think, and he's going to, I think he's going to have clearly a more of an opportunity to step up. Is he ready though? Is the bigger question. Cause it feels like Peyton Pritchard uh, is ready to contribute in the NBA. I think he did so last season and showed that last season. It's going to be unclear what exactly his role is, but he feels more NBA ready, I would say, but I think they get more value or more benefit if Neesmith is the guy who kind of can take a step forward. Yeah, I think you're right. And I guess that will always be Pritchard's burden is like proving as a six one white guy that he deserves to be on the court and he deserves to be in front of other options. Um, but from a standpoint of what the Celtics need, like they could use a little more length. They could use a little more versatility. They could use some more shooting. Like Neesmith theoretically provides all those things. I do think Pritchard clearly had a better rookie season. Clitchard, Pritchard is clearly a, a very good shooter at the NBA level. He's going to provide a lot of range. I just don't know if he'll be able to play with Schroeder. And if he, if he can, if, if that works and they can, you know, make it work with, with that backcourt defensively, then, you know, may, maybe he's a very good fit for that because then you don't have to worry about Schroeder's lack of shooting as much because Pritchard can really shoot the ball and he can provide a little more ball handling. Um, I think in an ideal world, Payne Pritchard just comes in and significantly outplays Dennis Schroeder, and then you just cut Dennis Schroeder. <laughs> like, Dennis, like if, if Dennis, if, if Payne Pritchard can just like be your primary ball handler when, um, like, for the bench and you're can run gonna, an offense. So you're, you're just going to cut a guy who's averaged 15 points per game for each of the last. Five yes, seasons. after he's been outplayed by uh, the second-year guy on the roster yeah. who can actually shoot and shoot from Weren't distance. Were we just talking about the depth the Celtics needed? You're ready to cut Dennis Schroeder. This I said in an ideal world, Peyton Pritchard will prove himself better than Schroeder and earn that role, and then we can cut Dennis Schroeder or maybe trade him for a second-round pick. Who knows? I'm just saying I want to see Peyton Pritchard play some basketball. I'm a big Peyton Pritchard guy. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm a Pritchard believer too. I, I just – think because Schroeder is another small guard it's just like a tougher fit for Pritchard um, exactly that's what we get the other small guards out of here the, the other competition as I see it is for the backup power forward spot and depending on how they use Horford like there might not be a whole lot of use for the backup power forward spot but Hernan Gomez I feel like he'd be a pretty good fit if he if he can be an offensive not a force necessarily, but like a, a productive offensive player than having a guy who's six nine and can shoot and can move a little bit, like could be pretty helpful. Uh Jabari Parker, we've seen him score. 
We haven't seen him do much else, but he, he can <laughs> but he score. can score it, man. He can score it. He, he can score. The man was just born with a gift. Um, and then Grant Williams, like I, I still haven't crossed off Grant Williams as as an option. I, I think over his two years, he's had a, a number of good games. Just needs to stop fouling all the time and become a little little more of an offensive threat. And I think, you know, may, maybe if the Celtics use him a little differently. Um, and Emi Odoka asked him to do different things. Maybe his his passing and stuff like that can be more of a plus than his lack of spacing is a minus. Um, so That's we'll, the thing we'll see how all that stuff goes. But I think, yeah, a lot of the time when I'm like envisioning this stuff, I'm envisioning it in Brad's system and doing Brad's stuff. And I don't think Udoka will probably overhaul everything they've done. But I think they're, you know, it's not going to be the exact same. And they're not going to be asking guys to do the exact same things they've done in the past. The thing that's wild, I'm just looking at last year's team. Grant played 63 games last year and in those games averaged 18 minutes. So he went from having like a a significant role, at least of just like, he, you're probably going to get into this game, Grant, where you didn't even factor him into the rotation whatsoever. And I think that's like, makes sense. And what does he bring? Like he's, uh, entering his third year, obviously had a down year, I think, last year from uh, just like an offensive standpoint. And I think we saw a lot of Grant Williams last year. Maybe we're maybe too hard on Grant Williams now that I think of it, just because he was forced to play 18 minutes a game in 63 games when it's just like, is, was Grant Williams ready or necessarily like deserve that big of a role? And so we saw a lot of, uh, I would say, flaws in Grant's game in terms of, fouling a lot on the defensive end, maybe not being as much of um, a presence on offense, but maybe in more of a reduced role where Grant's playing, I don't know, eight to 10 minutes a game, he can really be like, maybe the smaller role is good for him. Maybe um, he'll be able to kind of flourish where it's just like, Grant, we need you to be come in and be like the highest energy and most physical guy on the court for these two six minute stints. That's another reason why the, the bench depth just seems that much better where it's like, you don't, have to rely on 18 minutes a game from Grant. Like you can try Wancho, you can try um, maybe some Ennis Cantor minutes. Um, but I don't, I think people have written off Grant Williams because we saw him just kind of struggle in his second year, which I think is natural. Um, but I think he just had a little bit too much exposure last year where now it's him, him and battling for minutes for like a much smaller role. I think you probably have potential to get a lot more out of it. Yeah, and I think he still fits the mold of what the Celtics could need. You know, as a guy who provides defensive versatility, has a lot of bulk. Like, they don't have a – outside of the centers, they don't have a lot of bulky guys. And Marcus Smart, we'll, we'll give him the bulk. <laughs> we'll give him the bulk. Well, I don't know. Jason Tatum's apparently added, like, 15 pounds of muscle. Maybe he's a bulky guy. But, but they don't have, like, the the super bulky guys, the the guys who – They can got no one who's dummy thick. Physical guys down low. And so Grant Williams, like that size could be pretty important. And so we'll, we'll see how he plays. We'll see if how Adoka wants to play. Um, we'll see. Like there are a lot of different factors that will determine the minutes, especially for the guys more on the fringe of the rotation. So I, I'm interested in seeing all of it. It's it's for the first time in a long time, like we know nothing about this, this <laughs> Celtic, like what Adoka is going to do. Um, obviously, we've had a few hints, but like, it's not as predictable as it was when when Brad was the coach and we kind of could figure on at least how the Celtics were going to play and what their strengths were going to be. 
I think one of the reasons why we're like going into the season so blind is one, yes, it's a new coach, but two, and you mentioned this in your article, we have no idea what the Celtics are getting from Al Horford because it's absolutely not going to be the Al Horford that was here uh, playing with Kyrie Irving or the Al Horford that was here playing with Isaiah Thomas, where he was an all-star. Like, I just don't think he's at that level physically. And if he is, I'll be very pleasantly surprised, but with, like he just didn't play with the thunder really last year. And it's really hard to judge his season in Philadelphia just because it was clearly just a, a terrible fit where he was playing next to Joel Embiid is just a, a giant individual. And so we really don't know what Horford's going to do, how he's going to be used. Is he going to be start? Is he going to be a strictly a backup center? I'm a little cautious about Al Horford playing the four. Um, I know he can shoot more and like we've seen a lot of pick and pops with Al Horford over the years. I just think the spacing is probably better and Horford's probably best utilized um, playing the backup center. But maybe it's the type of thing where he starts at the four. He's like one of the first subs and then he comes in and spells Robert Williams. But we just we just don't know what we're getting just from, I think, like a physical athletic standpoint from Horford. We know he's a great passer. We know he's going to like make the right decision on defense. But it's like, what is he physically capable of um, at this point in his career? Yeah, and I, I think where that matters most is like the flexibility. You know, can he play four? Can he play five? Can you run as much offense through him? Can it, can he still hold up defensively against guys like Embiid in a one-on-one setting when it matters most? And and that's what we we don't know. Um, obviously, the the year in Philadelphia was not great from a fit standpoint, and I think he probably regrets going there in the first place. But you know, last year in Oklahoma City, the the film was pretty good, and he could move. He shot a higher volume on threes, which is you know always a thing with with Al Horford that you know he was a less willing three point shooter, I guess, and sometimes you'd want him to shoot a little more. Uh, he started doing that at Oklahoma City. Maybe maybe he won't continue that in a place where he's surrounded by a lot more talent, but we'll see. And I, I do think you know it. There's like a baseline of what Al Horford will be, which he's going to be. He's going to be good for the Celtics. He will definitely help the Celtics. He'll give them, you know, great positional defense. He knows what he's doing. He's a mature basketball player who is going to spice up the ball movement and give them a level of um, just creativity that they didn't really have out of the four and five spot last year. But is it going to be like 20 minutes a game or is it going to be like 28 minutes a game? Can he still reach back and get that like all-star level or that playoff Al level where he always seemed to to rise it up when he was playing against Giannis or somebody like that? Can he still get there? And and that's the question I have for him. That's the question I have um, about what type of impact he'll have. And it's obvious that he's still a good player and stuff like that. But But you wonder if he still has that that extra fastball that like in the, in the big matchups, can he still guard Giannis? Can he still guard Embiid? Can he still guard Simmons? Who I know you want to talk about him a little later. Oh, we'll we'll get to uh, everyone's favorite Ben Simmons. I think the other question for the Celtics is how much do you want Al Horford? Like, like how much do you want to rely on him? And I think a big part of that is like, can he play the four? But I think in the ideal world, 
like Robert Williams is your starting center and Robert Williams is getting the big minutes and Robert Williams is kind of the guy carrying uh, this team, at least in the front court. And I think Robert Williams is another big unknown one, mostly because of his just health of like whether or not he can be uh, stay on the court, which we just haven't seen him do really in his career. But Robert Williams took a lot of steps, I think, offensively last year. One, just like being able to step out a little bit and knock down a jumper. But we've seen Dime Lord make some passes. But if he can be um, – I'm like not really concerned about his offense, really, because Robert Williams, the man loves jumping. He can go up and catch a lob. He provides you that vertical spacing. Can he be a lockdown defender? Can he be like the captain of the defense where you can play lineups – where you don't necessarily need also need Al Horford out there where you can run Robert Williams and surround him with shooting. I just really like, like the idea of that with like running pick and rolls and the kind of spacing that provides, but can Robert Williams be your defensive anchor, your rim protector, a guy who's not like, he's going to block some three point shots. Yes. But he's also like, can he stay out of foul trouble? Can he not jump on pump fakes? Like, is he going to take the step on defensively where he is kind of your go-to guy I think he has the potential to do it but in order to do so he needs to stay on the court and he just hasn't shown that he can do that yeah he's obviously a playmaker like both ends of the court playmaker lob threat he racks up steals he racks up blocks like there are very few guys in the NBA who make as many plays as he does um defensively it's it's all about the minor detail and he he came so far last year and all the minor details with the positioning and stuff but I think I mentioned this in my story and it was one of the games that stood out as like like the the caution, you know. Remember when he started against Embiid and picked up three fouls in like two seconds and was barely able to stay on the court. Like stuff like that is if you're a starting center, that stuff matters. And it matters a lot. And and you you need to learn how to stay away from foul trouble. And I know Embiid puts a lot of guys in foul trouble, but it's like Avoid avoid the bad fouls, avoid the bad turnovers, avoid, you know, the the bad defensive positioning mistakes. And he got so much better at that, like infinitely better at that last season. If he can continue to get better at that and, you know, maybe take a page out of Horford's notebook now that Horford's back. And I I, I do think Al, you know, I, I do think the the Al and Aaron Baines impact on Robert Williams when he was younger in his career. Like he looked at those guys was like, okay, that's how to be a pro. And now Al Horford's back and Robert Williams has become a pro too. Like he works at it. You can tell he works at it because of how much he, he's improved, how much better shape he's gotten into. And, and we'll see. I, like there's obviously a huge ceiling there. Um, and he's obviously a lot closer to getting to that ceiling than he was a couple years ago. But how much closer can he get, and and how much more solid can he get? Like the trajectory that he showed last year was just really, really impressive. And, and I think like his the Celtics can go. I think we talk a lot, or I've talked a lot about it. Like it's up to Tatum to like become that superstar. But I do think the Celtics become so much more uh, competitive in the East if Robert Williams goes. Um, NBA is like a legitimate starter, a legit like a guy you can rely on um, to be there on both ends of the court, just because I think he really opens up the offense and he has so much potential and playmaking, as you mentioned, like the Celtics just bringing up those the top 100 rankings like they have 
Jalen. You, you love those top 100 ranks. It's, I've been thirsty for NBA content. It's the um, only thing that's been basically happening uh, the past week. But they only have three guys in the top 100. But if Robert Williams can even just like put himself on that list of just a very solid NBA player, a solid starter. They don't need him to be a star, but they need him to be a solid starter he can rely upon. I do think it just like kind of raises uh, the ceiling for the entire team. And so it's going to be interesting to see how consistent he's able to be. Um, uh, I'm assuming the starting role is his and how consistent he's able to be like in kind of what he does with that starting role. Why do you assume that though? Do you think? Because I feel like confidence. I think Horford will start at four and Robert Williams will start at five. Yeah. If if that's the case, then yeah, start those two guys together. I could see a world where Richardson starts and then Horford is the starting center. Um, But basically what? I would imagine Robert Williams is going to – and Al Horford are going to play similar minutes no matter who starts. Like I think they're both going to be around like 25 minutes a game. Yeah, probably as long as – I think it's just like you start Robert Williams to be like, hey – I think it's more of a mental psychological thing. Like you're the starter. This basketball. Like, let's go. We believe in you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we got two more questions left. The last one I think is interesting is what the hell happens now that Marcus Smarts are starting point guard? Because he's probably been the best, um, I think, uh, pick and roll playmaker the Celtics have had uh, in the last couple of years. And I know these kind of stats are bullshit, um, but they like they give a good proxy for what's going on. Just looking at like the position estimate for Smart on Basketball Reference. Last year he played forty five percent of the time at point guard. Before that, twenty three percent, and then single digits um, in each of the three seasons before that. Like he's pretty much played. And if you think about it, next to Isaiah Thomas, next to Kyrie Irving, next to Kemba Walker, he has not been the primary point guard uh, or person who starts the offense in a long time. I don't think ever that's been his sole role on the team. He's done a very good job of being able to come in and kind of like run, pick and roll and make plays. But now it is solely on his hands. And I don't want to uh, say any tales out of school, but sometimes his uh, decision-making will say has been questionable in the past. What's it like when now it's like Marcus Smart starting point guard? How does that kind of change what his game is and what he does? Yeah, I don't know if it'll change this game a whole lot, but I do think it changes the texture of their team. For the last, what, five, six years, longer, whatever it was, the, the Celtics have had an all-star point guard and a big scoring point guard to rely on. And someone they've gone to, a lot. in a lot of cases, it was Isaiah King in the fourth. It was Kyrie. Everything's running through him in the fourth. It was the first year, Kemba, at least at the start of that first year, like, Kemba's going to have the ball a lot in his hands at the end of games. So now the point guard is not your one of your top offensive options or the top offensive option. Um, he's at the very best third in that pecking order, uh, maybe lower. And so it changes the texture. I think defensively it's obvious. Like they should be able to mash teams with – big switchy lineups um, when Marcus Smart is their smallest player on the court. Like if he's the smallest player on the court, you don't have to hide anyone. You can switch basically everything. And and I just think defensively, and the numbers bear this out whenever he's played point guard in the past, like the Celtics have typically had very, very stingy defenses. 
Um, it's just like offensively, can can you get away without having that level of scoring and shot making from your point guard? And I think you can if the ball is going to be in Tatum's hands a lot. The ball is going to be in Jalen Brown's hands a lot. You don't necessarily need Marcus Smart to be like a prototypical point guard. He's not going to be a prototypical point guard. That's just not who he is. Um, but for someone who can run the offense, run pick and rolls, I do think the shot selection obviously is is something that that he needs to continue to work on and continue to iron out. But but I'm pretty optimistic that that will end up being pretty good for the Celtics. Um, and and it'll also just shift more of the scoring responsibilities toward Tatum and Brown and playmaking responsibilities too. And I, I think that especially the way Kemba played last year, um, you know, giving some of those extra possessions to Tatum and Brown will will end up being a good thing. Yeah, I don't think it's the type of thing where it's like he's the point guard, so he's like going to take the ball up every single time. Like I think we're going to see a lot of um, point Tatum. Point um, out. Point, point out. Al. We could also see the thing that I think is um, just great for the Celtics. Point Wancho? I don't want to see any point Wancho. Um, and it leads into your, your final question is, will the defense kind of stand back up? And I think it absolutely has if Marcus Smart's your starting point guard. Because if you just think back, teams, especially in the playoffs, could target Isaiah Thomas, could target uh, Kyrie Irving, could target Kemba Walker. You just get switches and you like try to post them up and you just kind of abuse them. You just can, can't do that with Marcus Smart. Even if you switch a center onto them, like Marcus Smart's post-defense is fantastic. And so I think the defense – with Marcus Smart play, as you said, being the smallest guy on the court as that point guard, I just think it's going to be that much better. And we've talked a lot about the bench, but Josh Richardson, wherever he plays, is just a solid defensive player. Al Horford's a pretty solid defensive player. Now, Ennis Cantor and Dennis Schroeder are not exactly um, those kind of strong guys, but they're your, what? seventh and eighth or eighth and ninth players on the roster. I think the Celtics right now have a core of whatever that core four is plus Richardson plus Horford. You're going to be able to put, no matter what, you're going to be able to put a strong defensive lineup on the court. And I think that's a, like, especially helps in the regular season. It's like how many times last year did the Celtics just fall apart because they just had a terrible, um, just terrible stretches of the quarters where the bench was in the game um, and they completely like fell apart and were got down by 15 and then like couldn't get all the way back. I just think given their depth and given their defensive depth, especially, I just think they're going to be in a lot more games this year and it's going to be close. And there might be times when they struggle to score because the offense is too much reliant on Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. But I think they're going to be a pretty stingy defense. And that comes one with Marcus Smart, like just having no weakness on that, like on your closing roster. Uh, and two, just having kind of more depth. So I think like it, the defense just has to be better than it was last year. Yeah, and I think, I think they'll be able to build some super switchy, versatile backcourts and perimeter rotations. Like if you have Smart, Richardson, Jalen, and Jason on the court, like those four can – that's as flexible as it gets or close to as flexible as it gets, like super flexible lineup right there. Uh, and then the other the, – the other, Part of that is I, I I do think like Brad always was a great defensive coach and and he may like we'll see but he was in charge of the Philadelphia defense um, he has a big 
defensive reputation, but like we'll see. It's his first time as a head coach. So that's that's one factor. And then the other factor, I think, is if they do play Horford at power forward, is that going to be a, a great defensive lineup? I think it has the potential to be. Like, you look a few years ago, Horford and center X, whatever, like the Celtics always had great defenses. Now they'll have Marcus Smart at point guard on top of that. Um, and so I think there's a chance that that, that lineup and that, having that size and having Tatum at the two and Jalen at the three, like that's huge on the perimeter. I think there's a chance that's a dynamite defensive lineup. I'm not sure about it though. Like, like maybe I'm just scarred from watching Tyson Thompson, but, but I'm not sure about it. So we'll see. Al Horford is not uh, as much as I love Daniel Tice. Al Horford at the four is not the same as uh, Daniel Tice. Definitely not. And Tristan Thompson is bad at basketball. So I like, I don't think we have to worry about like the fear of the too big lineup. I don't know if it's going to be the best Celtics lineup, um, but it, I just do think that the the defense, no matter what, uh, should be improved just based on like what the personnel is and um, like just the depth they have and what they can do moving forward. And so they have a potential to be like I think a top five defense. I think the big question for them is like what, how good can they get offensively. Um, especially with like their best defensive lineup. Like ideally I think their best defensive lineup involves Richardson and probably not Al Horford on the court or maybe Al Horford at center in place of Rob Williams. It's like how much does the lack of shooting there make it so it's like you can't really play that defensive lineup. So it's, it's going to be interesting, but you know what we've, that's why they're going to have training camp and we're going to answer all 10 of these questions. One day they will all be answered. That they will all be answered probably all at media day. Uh, all the players can be ready to talk about uh, everything Monday. that's happening this season. Media day is Monday. Big media. day. We will uh, be back next week um, probably to talk about media day and uh, the opening of Celtics training camp. Um, we're about an hour right now. We don't have to talk about Ben Simmons because uh, I don't really have much to say. So if you guys enjoyed the show. Well, hold on. Does that mean Ben Simmons is not potable? Uh, it might mean Ben Simmons is not potable. I don't like what anything is potable. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code The Athletic, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.